Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Notes from the Ivy League. This week, Sierra Nolan joins the podcast. She's, she grew up in Seattle and graduated from Washington and Lee University in 2017, majoring in anthropology and sociology. She now runs Project Mishran, an organization that connects people in the community with employment as artisans and children in their community with educational sponsors. And all of this happens in India. Um, so, Sierra, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing doing well. Um, a pretty busy week, but can't complain. Um, do you mind giving us a glimpse into your personal story? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Um, was going to high school at Shorecrest and didn't really have a good idea of what was going to end up with college as a first-generation student. Um, My parents weren't necessarily doing the whole concerted cultivation thing where they were pushing me along and really pushing me with grades or college applications or kind of planning my entire life out. But uh, I had a lot of uh, institutional support from the high school. Um, My counselors played a pretty big role and some of my teachers my senior year kind of helped me get on that path to where um, I was in a good place to apply to colleges. And um, I specifically applied through QuestBridge uh, College Match, and I got accepted at Washington and Lee, which was kind of a curveball. To be perfectly honest, my initial uh, reason for applying to Washington and Lee was because a high school boyfriend who is a year older than me (laughs) had gone there. And so I was like, well, why not? I'll put Washington and Lee on my list um, for the sake of young love. But (laughs) needless to say, I ended up getting accepted there with a full ride. So um, regardless of the relationship status, Uh, I decided to go there um, because of the financial aid. Mm -hmm. And going there was really interesting. I mean, I I knew what I was in for, especially coming from a place like Seattle, where even though it was it was a city, um, I wasn't sheltered in a certain in certain ways. In other ways, I was very sheltered from things like blatant racism and um, just seeing a really stark socioeconomic divide um, because I didn't really grow up around private school wealthy kids and that's kind of what WNL was at least at first glance and so I came in uh, having a relatively liberal attitude being from the northwest and this is um, to give you some background Washington and Lee is located in Lexington, Virginia. It's a small town. Um, Primarily, there are students, and a lot of the students, um, you know, come from private schools. A lot of the students are white, and a lot of the students are wealthy. Um, You should fact check me on this, but I believe that the average, and this was in maybe 2013, the average, household family income at Washington and Lee was $250,000. That's the average. So um, for me, that was just like, it's just a very different culture, a very different attitude and adjusting was proved to be a particular challenge in certain ways. Um, However, 
there's always the niche, right, that you fall into, mm-hmm. the classic trope. Um, but it's true. They're definitely, and I definitely ended up hanging out with kids who were also first generation, um, also perhaps not involved in the Greek system. That was also, a, to a certain degree, a marker of wealth or status at the school. And so I sort of took pride in the counterculture aspects um, of my social life there. And there were times where I was like, oh, no, I don't know if I can do this. Maybe I need I might have to transfer. But there is there's something to be said about the golden cage of being um, on a full ride scholarship. Right. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, I could transfer, but would I get as much money anywhere else? Um, You know, who knows? It's not as good of a shot. Like I had a really great opportunity for this. So it was this constant struggle of being like, okay, I don't want to be ungrateful for this amazing opportunity I have yet. I also feel a little bit stuck here um, Mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit out of place at times. Um, So by the time I was a junior, senior, like, I felt very comfortable with it. I had it. I had the social group and the commitment to my academic work at that point to where um, I felt truly socially, academically, personally fulfilled there. Um, and it was around that time, my junior year, that I also started really digging deeper into my academics. I started having the opportunity to travel specifically to South Asia. And that was kind of a turning point for later on, um, something that my career choice, my career path kind of stemmed out of um, my junior year. I studied abroad in India. um, And the summer before that, I had traveled in India with one of my best friends in college. um, And so, that was just my first little taste of South Asia. And it, um, it hooked me in certain ways. It was a really powerful um, travel experience initially. And then studying abroad there gave me a more well-rounded perspective, not just the, the tourist perspective, right? Um, mm-hmm. And when, so actually the very first time I went to India is when scratch that so the very first time I went to Nepal actually is when I met um some of the main people who are involved in Project Mishran with me now um there were two brothers walking around in Kathmandu and I was with my dad on this this afternoon and one of the men kind of pulled my dad aside saying hey sir sir can you can I shine your shoes? Can I fix your sandals? And he was a cobbler. This is what everyone in his cast does. All the men in his cast shine shoes, fix shoes. They work with leather. And so being tourists, we were used to being kind of pestered by people selling things in the street. And then my dad kept refusing and refusing and refusing. But this man kept persisting. And eventually, just to get him to leave us alone, my dad was like, okay, fine, fix my shoe. And my dad didn't even think there was anything wrong with his sandal, but this guy knew what he was doing. Um, This man, Kashmiri, shows in that there's actually this tear along the sole, and he's sewing his sandal up, and Kashmiri's brother comes along, and we end up talking to them. 
they speak English mm, broken, but we can get on with the conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, we end up chatting about life. They invite us back for tea, for tea and some chapatis um, at their home, which is in what many people will call a slum Um I like to call it the Indian camp because that's what the people who live there call it. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of Indian migrants living in Kathmandu together in these bamboo tents with tarps. Um, and they're basically camping. They're not permanent homes by any means. But we went back there with them and just kind of talked. My dad had come to Nepal, had come to South Asia um, knowing that he wanted to do something vaguely philanthropic, but not really sure what he had gotten a little bit of money from his sister to kind of just use it, whether that's giving it to people he sees on the streets or maybe towards a more um, formal, you know, uh, organization. And he realized that this was a perfect opportunity. So he asked this family and he asked Kashmiri and Kashmiri's wife, you know, what, what can I do for you? What do you need most right now? And their answer was that, well, our priority is to get our kids in school. Mm-hmm. We didn't go to school. Our parents didn't go to school. Our parents' parents didn't go to school. And, um, you know, that's why we're doing what we're doing today. That's why we're living like we're living right now. And so my dad said, well, how, how much is school, you know? And it was about, at that time in 2015, it was about $200, $300 per student uh, per year for private school. Um, and my dad was like, oh, well, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I can commit to that. You know, it's one thing mm-hmm. to give someone $50, but it's another thing to essentially agree to sponsor a family. And so my dad decided to exchange information with them. Um, it was just phone number and email. And... Um, the men couldn't even like write or read in English. So it was hard when we left, we had a little bit of communication, but there was a lot of misunderstanding in certain ways. My dad was really sketched out. He was paranoid about it being a scam. And Mm -hmm. he ended up doing a Facebook fundraiser, just making a status on Facebook, telling the story of how we met this family and asking for donations. And we ended up getting enough money to send, um, two of Kashmiri's, his two eldest kids, to school for that year. So we negotiated, well, not negotiated, we we figured out all the bells and whistles of how to send them money through Western Union. And um, yeah, (laughs) made leaps and bounds over the language barrier. They had um, friends and extended family members who could kind of parse together sentences for them because they couldn't write in English. And they'd make really expensive long distance calls to us to try to, you know, assist in the process of getting this money so that their kids could go to school. And so that first year happened, um, their kids went to school, or at least as far as we knew at the time. Um, And we kind of didn't talk to them for a while. It was kind of like, all right, well, that was a cool, that was a unique experience, like kind of feeling good about ourselves, but not really like not really knowing if we'd ever really see the results of what we had done. Like, and that's fine. Um, but I ended up going back to India to study abroad mm-hmm. and they're from India. They're from Rajasthan. It's just that they travel to Nepal um, seasonally to find work. So um, 
I ended up contacting them again when I was studying abroad. And at that point, I had been taking some Hindi lessons. So I was able to communicate a little bit more easily. And essentially, I was like, hey, can I come see where you're from? Can I come see you in your hometown? It's called Rajagar. Um, and visit your family, you know, see the kids in school. I'd, I'd love to reconnect. And they were very, very, very graciously welcomed me back into their home. And at this point, I also had um, in the workings kind of like what I wanted to do as an undergraduate honors thesis. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I ended up traveling after my semester in Pune, India ended, I traveled to Rajgar to meet with this family for the second time ever. I had no idea what to expect. My dad was like pretty terrified for me just because, I mean, we met them once one day in Kathmandu a year ago, right? (laughs) And I'm like this 21-year-old woman from America who speaks barely any Hindi. So, um, and I was nervous, but I also, based off of my interactions I had with them up to that point, I was really excited and I, and I, we had built enough trust. Um, so I had a local friend who I knew in Pune, a Hindi speaking friend. And I said, Hey, you want to come with me? You can help me translate a little bit. Um, and just help me navigate, uh, culturally as well. And so I had my friend Roy come with me. Um, and I stayed with them for the summer. I stayed part of the summer in Rajagar. And I spent a lot of time with the women, a lot of time with the children. Um, They have a different school schedule than us. So I got to see them going to school. And um, it was, in fact, not a scam. (laughs) The kids were actually going to school. And I got to meet with the principal. And I just talked. I talked to them. I cooked with them and just kind of lived the normal life. I was doing ethnographic research. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went and saw the other side of it. Um, most of the men in this community were living in Kathmandu in this original Indian camp, this Indian migrant camp. And so I spent part of the summer there as well and got to see how they'd walk around the streets in in Tamil, the tourist district of Kathmandu, um, you know, just asking tourists is a a cross between essentially begging and, and shoe shining because most of us these days don't really need to get our shoes shined. We're usually wearing chocolates yeah. or something like that. <laughs> so, um, you know, if they were lucky, people would give them 60 rupees, 100 rupees. Sometimes people were more generous and they'd come home with, in U.S. dollars, about four bucks at the end of the day. Maybe five bucks on a good day. Um, and they would send a majority of it back home. To mm-hmm. their wives and their kids. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna go way back, um, and because something that that really interests me mm-hmm. um, when I'm speaking with first gen or low income college students and graduates, it's really like I'm really interested in like who motivated them to go to college, who mo- who motivated them to even think about going to some of the top schools in the country you know? yeah so, yeah like who who motivated you or what motivated you I think I think it's twofold I mean I will say that in this at 
I think recently it's all of a sudden become the norm to go to college in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So even though it wasn't the norm within my family, I was like socially integrated enough at the high school to see all of my friends doing it and realizing like, oh my God, this is something I have to do. Because if you don't, then you, you know, you're a failure or like you're not going to be successful. And so to Mm -hmm. a certain degree, there was just a lot of social pressure. But on the other aspect, uh, on the other side of it, I also had um, really great support system um, through teachers and counselors. Um, I can think of my senior year pre-cal teacher and I was not a math person at all but he remains to be like my favorite teacher ever his name was Mr. Martinez Gabe Martinez and um he was super motivational in just helping just helping me build my own self-confidence I mean in a subject where I wasn't super confident he made it fun and engaging and he was also my advisor as I was involved in student government and he was my advisor um, for student government as well and so he was very supportive in kind of pushing me along through the last legs of senior year and um, through to graduation. Okay is there anything else you want to you want to share with with the project because I, I think it's really cool yeah um, well i'll connect the dots a little bit more um since the, we have a little bit of a, a blank spot between um my thesis and then the actual project but um basically <laughs> to give you my thesis title so i ended up um putting a thesis together um imagination capital and mobility a case study of indian migration to nepal And this was something that I really enjoyed doing. Um, But when all was said and done, I feel like I hadn't really contributed that much in writing my ethnography uh, to this community. Mm -hmm. I was educating my peers at Washington and Lee. I was, you know, sharing my academic interests and in producing quality academic work. But at the end of the day, I felt like I hadn't really made an impact. And ultimately, that's where my heart's at. That's why I wanted to work with these people. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up getting a grant as a graduate um, to go back and do another project with them. And this time, um, what I had in mind was completely different. Maybe I would do more ethnographic style work, but ultimately I wanted to work hand in hand with them on a project that they got to tell me what they wanted it to be. They got to have the say in what the end result was and how it benefited them. And at this point, um, I had done a summer of CLS, Critical Language Scholarship Hindi. I was basically fluent, at least conversational. And so that was also a huge factor in allowing me uh, to work collaboratively with them. Once again, their main goals were to put their children in school. But another aspect of that was just being able to have a stable household, have a stable income, and that meant employment because, once again, the men in the families were cobblers, shoe shiners, and the women either just stayed at home and raised the kids, or at most they would go out onto the streets and beg. And so what Project Mission is, is there's two projects kind of underneath Project Mission. There's the Mission Cooperative, um, and right now we're just an Etsy shop. And we sell one-of-a-kind ethical home goods that are made 
by members of this community. It started off with just selling quilts, which they're traditional Raleigh quilts. They're made all over North India and Pakistan. Really beautiful, contest-stitched, very detailed um, quilts. But we ended up not having a boatload of success selling them. So we wanted to expand to kind of see what people liked, what people could afford. Um, And so we made headbands, oven mitts, placemats, rugs, uh, you name it. There's lots of fun um, textile-based products we now have on the Etsy shop. And we're at the point where we're hoping to find stores that want to carry the products. Um, But we feel good about it. We just need to keep uh, selling things in order for it to be a sustainable form of employment for Mm -hmm. community members. So right now we're kind of at this lull. We're just looking for new opportunities to um, keep the product flowing. But the other, the sister project to the Michelin Co-op, which is complementary to it, is... Um, Mishran Kids, it connects sponsors with kids in the community so that the sponsors can put them through school when their parents have yet to find that, you know, consistent income and, um, you know, school is expensive. Unfortunately, the public school system in India just really isn't great unless you're in a big city um, and there's just a few public government schools that are good quality and, and they don't live in the areas that offer uh, free high quality school. The free schools in their area have a lot of teacher absenteeism and just very low standards uh, for student learning. So the only viable option for true improvement, true education is private schools, which range from three to five hundred dollars u.s per student per year um and we've had a lot more success so far with um mission kids um we have let's see we have one two three four five we have seven kids who are sponsored seven kids who are sponsored right now through mission kids which isn't a lot but um, we're really happy with that number because mm-hmm. we started off with just two. My dad was just yeah. sponsoring two, and now there's seven. And so we hope to keep that going on. And in the future, there might be more projects to add. It kind of depends on, um, you know, where the people in the community want to take it, whether the projects we currently have prove to be beneficial uh, down the line or, you know, if we need to totally renovate Uh, our ideas that we have but Mm -hmm. it's a work in progress it's been a very organic bottom up project Mm -hmm. and that's something that we really value um as a family of as as a project um so yeah we hope to keep it going like that and keep keep our sights on just how the community uh, wants to work and wants to see the project grow. Okay. Yep. I mean, I, I really think it's a great idea. And I also don't think that, I, you know, I, I think that you, you know, sponsoring seven kids, like that's, that's still a great feat because like, I think, I think both of us know the importance of education and how, that one opportunity or that one teacher or educator that 
or just person in your like in your network that's like sees you and like wants to support you that that can have like a profound impact on your life um, right so yeah i think i think that's great um and then in addition to running an international organization um what else do you do in your free time like what yeah what do you do I- yeah, I teach lots of yoga. Um, I practice yoga. I teach yoga. Um, that's another thing that I did in India while I was in India. Um, in 2016, I got my yoga teacher training, um, 200 hour. And so that's something that keeps me sane while I'm busy, <laughs> while I'm stressed. Um, I really love teaching and practicing yoga. Okay. And um, do you have any any rituals or routines that you do that you think, in, in addition to yoga, that you think really keep you grounded and centered that you'd like to share? Hmm. No, nothing in particular. I mean, I would say, you know, I, I try to meditate. I try to keep a routine. Ultimately, the thing, the only thing that really serves me um, that I think contributes to my success just as an individual, just in, in, um, as a person is being constantly grateful. Mm -hmm. I realized that as soon as I start feeling negative, um, or feeling like nothing's going right, it's oftentimes because I'm looking too far inward and my perspective, you know, has narrowed to me, my wants and needs, but everything begins to get much more manageable when I take the perspective back out, um, especially when it comes to Project Mission. Um, you know, whenever I'm feeling, have a super, uh, a lack of motivation or I'm feeling like, why do I even bother? What am I even doing? Mm-hmm. You know, all I have to do is send a voice message to one of the people back in Rajgarh and I'm like, whoa, this, this is meaningful. You know, this, mm-hmm. this is why I'm doing it. Okay, and so what is a piece of advice that you think any college applicant, any and anyone should should hear? Piece of advice. And you know, it can be life advice, it can be life like don't like don't be afraid to stand out I mean that's that sounds super cliche but I think it's like especially because um going to college has become such a such a norm such a prescribed thing I think there's definitely like a set path and people are going to tell you like you have to do it this way but ultimately I think if you know you know you know yourself best you know what you bring to the table you know how you're unique and if that doesn't fit the 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 prescribed set of like how to get into college 101 don't be afraid to use that because that's there's going to be someone on the admissions committee who really values that um that edge that you have that makes you different and do you have any quotes that you like to live by hmm let me see. I keep a list on my phone. I've been reading. So I've been reading this book, actually. Um, I would highly recommend it. It's called Rules for a Night. Mm-hmm. 
Have you ever heard of it? It's by Ethan Hawke, actually, like the actor Ethan Hawke. He didn't write it, but he edited it and put Mm -hmm. it together. Essentially, it's just like his great, great, great grandfather had written a letter to his kids. um, And it's his great, great, great grandfather was a knight and and wrote that this these letters, a series of letters, which ended up um, being put into this book. But it's kind of just a series of like how, how to live a good life, like how to be um, content with the life you're living and live it well. Um, so I'm going to read you a quote from that. Okay. Um, like a dead branch falling from a tree, which then decomposes and nourishes the soil your disappointments can transform into the elements of change and growth. So I like that one. That's one that I sometimes read in my yoga classes too. Okay. Um, Sierra, thank you again for joining me this week. Um, I had, I had fun learning more about the work that you do and just learning your story a little bit more because, you know, we don't know each other aside from this. So thank you for taking the time. Um, and for everyone listening, I'll put the, I'll put the show notes on my blog. I'll put it on social media as always. Um, And thank you for listening.